0: QUT acknowledges the Turrbal and Yugara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their Elders, Laws, Customs and Creation Spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been
1: ceded. Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guests this episode are Gina and Rebecca Masterton. Gina is currently doing her postdoctoral studies with the School of Justice at QUT, looking at transportation as a justice issue in rural and remote areas of Australia. Her sister Rebecca is a provisional psychologist, currently finishing her master's degree in professional psychology. They are both strong, feminist women, as will become abundantly clear over the course of this interview. They are also proud, gubby gubby, waka waka women. On this podcast, Jodie, Rebecca and Gina discuss transport as a justice issue, the politics in the US and what it was like to live there, the treatment of indigenous voices in Australia, and what it's like to try to escape domestic violence over international borders. I'd also like to make a content warning. This episode contains some discussion of domestic violence and abuse, including some brief descriptions of injuries incurred from domestic violence. If that's not for you today, maybe jump to another episode. Without further ado, Gina and Rebecca Masterton.
0: (laughs)
2: to how to academia tell me who you are thank you for inviting me Jodie I am Gina Masterton Dr Gina Masterton I guess after all that hard work finishing a thesis last year I am an indigenous postdoctoral researcher here at the center for justice in the school of justice at QUT
3: hi Jodie hi everyone my name is Rebecca and I am Gina's sister younger sister (laughs) Obviously I am am an indigenous woman as well, proud indigenous woman. I am a provisional psychologist, currently finishing my master of professional psychology. And Gina and I are both staunch feminists and we are very, very interested in helping other, especially other women. But people that have faced adversity and um, injustice. injustice, and we just find, we just believe that that's our calling. Uh, it's our to, purpose. And it's our purpose to, to help other people, and that's why we're here today. So it's, it's lovely to be here, and thank you for the invite. And we are Gubby Gubby Waka Waka Women. I'm so excited about this chat.
0: I feel like it's gonna be a good one. Gina, let's start with you. Okay. What
2: does it mean to be a postdoctoral fellow? It means that I get the opportunity to choose my own project to work on for, in my case, a three year period. So once I finished my PhD thesis, which was May last year, I started on my own project, which is looking at transportation issues for indigenous women, In remote and rural areas in Queensland so people's minds don't usually go to the fact that you know transportation could be an issue or lack of transportation because we're all just it's also available to us in the city areas Mm. but when you think of being in a rural or remote area where there's there's no train there's no bus to get a taxi is very expensive even just to go to the next town to shop because you don't have a car or you don't have a license it makes life really difficult, mm. especially if you're a mother and you have children to care for and, and to get to school, hospital appointments, medical appointments, doc, see other relatives, or you care for your elders, or you work in the community to work, study, anything. Your life really does revolve around whether or not you can get to places. So I started that 12 months ago, and that's an ongoing project. I'm just getting through ethics now, so in the next month or two I will be travelling to uh, these communities in Mount Isa and thereabouts to, to meet with people, meet with community and collect some data around what these issues are and hopefully expose them and hopefully that'll lead to some kind of resolution or more, more assistance in these communities. Why is transport a justice issue? for so many reasons but I initially started looking at this from the perspective of the high rate of incarceration for Indigenous people who get in the situation where they're caught driving a car and they're not licensed mm. and that does happen in a lot of rural and remote areas not just with Indigenous people but a lot of people drive cars and they don't have a license or they've had a license and it's been suspended or revoked but they still drive because they need to get to some place so when that happens it's it's a fine type situation and then when people can't pay fines it gets more serious and you can end up going to jail Mm. if you can't pay fines so I was looking at that issue and my project will perhaps deal with a bit of that but yeah that was my initial issue that I came across was why are people going to jail because they can't pay fines you know why aren't they getting licences or why are they they losing their Mm. licence is there a way, are there better programs or models out there in the world where we can facilitate indigenous, you know, kids kids at high school, for instance, getting their license, making it really important to them to know that they need to keep a license, or it can spiral out of control and you can end mm. up in this, you know, place where you don't want to be. So that's the big issue for me is this incarceration rate for driving without a licence or And driving intoxicated as well. I mean, that's dangerous, and none of us want that to happen. But for people to be going to jail for this because they can't pay the fines is very, very unjust. And we know about black deaths in custody. We know the numbers are not going down, or they're not—you know, it hasn't stopped. So I don't like to see Indigenous people go to jail for for a lot of reasons, but mostly because you might not come out.
0: It's just absurd to me that we send people to jail because they can't pay for fines and we just complete this cycle of poverty over and over and over again and further marginalise people. It's
2: kind of, it seems crazy. Well, it's a clash of cultures. Like it's not in, it was never in Indigenous culture to do this kind of thing, to go, you know, if you want to get somewhere, you need to drive a car. I mean, we, you know, we walked everywhere. So, I mean, to do that, and now, you know, the, the colonial law says you have to go and do this program, you have to pass these tests, and there's literacy problems. There's mm. It costs money to get Expensive. a license. Yeah, to even take lessons. Now, I'm not even sure I'd get a license these days because it's so hard. And then to maintain that, you know, people drive cars that aren't roadworthy because mm. they don't have to have the money to fix them. So if you're getting fined for an unroadworthy vehicle for driving because your license has been suspended, because you need to go to a medical appointment or take your child somewhere... I mean there are reasons around people people are just flaunting the law this is part of their life and they don't think about the consequences mm. at the moment they just need to get somewhere
3: mm. not to mention people in rural areas yes. are mostly uneducated because they haven't been even More been interested in school yeah, so yeah you know, looking, reading language. and writing
2: for these tests yeah. is just not going to happen. It's yeah. not even possible. The tests don't incorporate language, you know, so it's, unless you are very literate with English, then, you know, your chances of getting through these tests and passing them are pretty low. But there's also got to be the issue of, like, the number of hours that you have
0: to do now with somebody who is a licensed driver, like, there has to be a bit of a cycle here with being mm-hmm. able to access people that are... License in order to get up your hours and you even feel like I've had to fill out those logbooks with kids Mm. and like it's it's complicated it's a very complicated
2: system now to get a drive I'm not saying we shouldn't have you know programs and rules around it's a big responsibility to drive a car on the road but when you're dealing with that's like me you know if I went to another country somewhere that you know English wasn't their isn't their language and I had to learn how to pass all these Mm. tests and and you know, learn all the rules and regulations. That would be a struggle for me. Mm. So, when you're dealing with a different yeah. demographic, you have to adjust all the the
3: structure and the and the rules and regulations to adhere to what they're capable of and what
2: they understand. Yep. Make it doable. You make know, totally yeah, make achievable. It yeah. Make it achievable. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Particularly, I mean, it's like it's it's complex for kids that that are wanting to access services that are wanting to access things that are outside of the community, which is what we want people to have opportunities, right? And yet this whole complex issue around transport is problematic. Mm. Yes. So, Gina, you don't come from a criminology background,
2: though. I come from a law background. So I finished my law degree with QUT in 2000, Mm -hmm. and I got admitted as a barrister with the Queensland Supreme Court and the High Court of Australia in 2000. And then about a year later, I moved to Los Angeles and I worked there for 13 years in law firms, relocated there for personal reasons, and just had a really amazing experience for 13 years. um, My sister came with me, Rebecca, and yeah, just had a great time working there and learning from really good lawyers. Did mostly litigation, which isn't sex, doesn't sound sexy, but, you know, it's all about how you can learn all these different skills as an advocate for and, and that's that has stayed with me right now as, as a feminist advocate for as a human rights lawyer I still call myself mostly focusing on issues that affect women so that's my passion now so I learned a lot of great skills being there and my sister got married and had a baby boy when she was there so we brought home a souvenir. <laughs> 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 He's still living, living with me in my home and eating me out of your yeah, house and home. He's 12 now, um, taller than us. Oh, it's going to get worse. Oh, yeah, the feed just has to keep coming. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it was a great experience, and I had a really good chunk of time learning from really good advocates. And, yeah, I, 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 I think every experience is a learning experience and can take mm. you forward
0: into other areas. Was it difficult transitioning into an American legal system?
2: No. no. Well, it's a lot of stuff is the same, not exactly the same, but the theories behind mm-hmm. it are the same. I'm a fast learner, so I kind of picked it up pretty quickly. But I, talk, I had to teach myself a lot of stuff, and they expect you to learn quickly in that in the, in those situations. And it's a very fast paced environment, and I was I was younger, so <laughs> um, I had the energy to kind of you know pick up on things, but. No, I found it pretty straightforward to just learn the codes, learn the legislation. It's very similar to here and how it is, mm. uh, the, the system. Well, you were writing briefs for your bosses uh, and you were better at it than they were. Remember? Yeah, i got a lot of, I'm, a, I'm not a bad writer, but um, cause you, when you love something, yeah. you invest in it, you pick it up, you know, it's it's, um, it's a joy. So it was really fun for me at that time.
0: Rebecca, what on earth made you decide to go to L.A. with your big sister?
3: Basically, I have been
2: my shadow. hanging out <laughs> with her
3: ever since I was about 12, and she was about 15, 16, and she just hasn't been able to shake me ever since, and Gina actually went over there to, to get married, and she uh, had met a nice guy, and he was American, and she said, you, you know, come, come to my wedding, and that's what I did, and stayed I just loved it so much I ended up staying for as long as I could and one thing led to another and you know I met somebody and got married so then you know I could stay for longer for as long Mm -hmm. as I wanted became a citizen so I have dual citizenship and so does my son but honestly America is amazing it's it's just like here it's you know you would think that you were here only there's no humidity so
2: <laughs> <laughs> in California we were, and we were lucky to
3: live in good areas so we were never yeah. never felt like we were in danger. Mm. It wasn't a big drastic transition. So, yeah, no, it was it was exciting. I'm yeah. glad that we definitely I'm glad we had that experience, but it's nice to be home, that's for mm. sure.
0: So America's getting a fair bit of flack at the moment for mm. their global
2: positionality, shall we say? Mm. <laughs> how do you like? How do you reflect on that? America, my opinion is, America has always been very insular, like historically, because they could be. Mm. So, as a superpower, I mean, they have everything they need. I mean, it's like us, and we, we're really not dependent on other countries if we really had to. Like, if COVID had gone on and on and on, we could have produced enough food here and medications and other things, power to sustain our country. So, America's always been very insular. They haven't. Because we're part of the Commonwealth, we've had that connection with the UK and, and, and that European background. We've had a lot of European people migrate here. We're multicultural. America's been very disconnected, I think, I think from the rest of the world in many ways, uh, politically, in a lot of different ways, because... They didn't think they needed anybody else. (laughs) So, I mean, they've had allies around the world and they like to be, you know, friendly with us because we're in the Pacific and they have allies in other strategic parts. But I think they've started to realise since COVID happened that, you know, no man's an island
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and you do need to have these networks. You do need to have these relationships and for all kinds of reasons. But, you know, being insular has kind of caused a political downfall for them, in a lot of ways, and especially having Trump as the president come in and his very divisive ideologies and, and theories and outright, you know, comments. And to see so many people get behind that and go, well, yeah, that guy's, you know, reflecting how I feel too. Mm-hmm. That was pretty confronting to know. You, know. you know those people are there in society, but, you know, for them to really come out of the woodwork and, and see the numbers for what well, they elected him. So, I mean, that was very confronting. But um, we I don't wanna see Australia go down that road where everything important is privatized and it's about you know, it's for profit. It doesn't do society any good to have to have that. I mean, we need to kind of stay the way that Scandinavia is. It's a smaller population, I get that, but just being very society focused and and making sure people are taken care of it's a much better model mm. for Australia, and I hope that that is the way we keep going, I hope. I mean, things are changing here, and a lot of people are, you know, suffering even now, homelessness, not act, no access to medical help. Children are, you know, not getting education. I mean, what's going to happen with the next generation that we have kids that didn't get access to education? It's a bit scary mm. um, and very different from when we grew up because we had everything. You know everything was there. You know you could go to the CES to send a link and grab a job off a board, and you know it, it was just there was no problem. You mm. know not like there is now, and it's confronting even being here now, seeing what people are dealing with. What do you
0: see the differences in how the Black Lives Matter movement has rolled out in America as opposed to Australia?
2: The difference. Mm. Well, first of all, there's racism everywhere, everywhere. Just like there's misogyny and everywhere as well. I think that when it with America and the Black Lives Matter movement, because there were so many people behind it, and that's what I think where change comes from Mm. as a movement. Like with feminism, with with women's rights, with any kind disability rights, anything anything that any I wouldn't say disadvantaged group or vulnerable group, any issue that we have. If you get the numbers behind it that's when change can happen as we've seen with feminism over the years since the 1900s you know you had to take a mass amount of of people to get behind you know why can't women vote and etc cetera, etc cetera. so I mean in America with Black Lives Matter they've had the numbers behind this and the media and the media has just mm-hmm. really you know made more than anything really but then you know there's still you know black men being shot every day by police I mean does it make a difference? I mean, it highlights the issue, people get angry, you know, police departments, you know, change how they deal with people of colour. It, it can only help. I mean, if, if, there's, if there's no movement, nothing's gonna, nothing's gonna happen. We just don't know
3: at this stage if it is making a difference. But there's definitely more um, publicity around it. So you hear a lot more about these things now, these issues, thanks to the media. And Uh, social media—it's all over. It's everywhere. But is it making a difference? I think it's
2: too soon to tell. And when you compare Australia to that, it's even worse here because you know, for some reason—and this is my personal opinion—well, people may have their reasons. I don't know. But Indigenous people are not respected in this country. Mm. The culture here—I mean, it is getting better. And I always try to be—I try to be glass half full. I go, if someone gives me a little bit of something, it's better than nothing. If it's going to push this issue a little bit further, but there's always been a lack of understanding about Indigenous culture here, there's been a a lack of respect, there's, you know, all kinds of stereotypes around Indigenous people that, you know, they drink, that, you know, Indigenous people basically in most regards will harm themselves, they're not a culture that, where they go out to hurt other people, and in doing that with, you know, I'll say drug and alcohol abuse and other things that happen... That is, you know, has led non-Indigenous people in this country to really have a lot of disrespect for Indigenous culture and just to paint everybody with that brush. And that's mostly because of intergenerational trauma. Intergen- it is, it is. not feeling like they fit into society now. Well, because, way because Indigenous people are ostracised and we are other, othered. You know, we're like, well you know in other countries there's indigenous culture like in New Zealand but the Maori people are very well respected I've been there a few times and you know non non indigenous people they really have a lot of respect for that culture for the most part and it makes a big difference to have that respect it just you know it lifts you up and mm-hmm. i think indigenous people here are just not lifted up because there's there's not that respect of culture and and everything that culture can bring in my and you know it would be my goal to to bring you know to 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 have people more educated about that the, the artwork that you know the storytelling the the history of the culture um learn from indigenous people about the land yeah. you know if you want to know how to burn off something burn off something to you know protect you know uh anything to do with the land, ask someone that's black because, you know, they've been living here for 80,000 years. I mean, go out to these communities and go, well, yeah, we made that mistake, so we'll tell you not you know to not do it, and this is how we found out how to do it. We know and what you can eat to not kill yourself if yeah. you're stuck out in the desert for a couple of weeks. Tap into and the culture and learn about it, but I mean, mm. yeah, I mean, until there's that respect and that which starts with an acknowledgement of Indigenous people being the first people mm. that were, on this continent, it's got to start there and people have to stop being afraid that to give give indigenous people a voice is going to mean that they're going to lose you know their rights or their house or their whatever i mean it's just a very small and long overdue acknowledgement that indigenous people were here from the very beginning and and we live here we mm-hmm. all got to, we all have to live together so we well, were here
3: first <laughs> <laughs> you know, i can't understand the whole concept about why we have to ask to have a voice we have to beg to be acknowledged we have to beg people (laughs) and and we have to keep advertising the whole whole yes campaign and explaining to people what it means because and fair enough you know a lot of people don't know what it's all about but i can't even believe that we're asking for permission to be acknowledged and we have to vote on it and we were here first i mean it just doesn't make sense to me i'm gonna
0: say like as a white woman and as a queer white woman who has been through a... Referendum. ...plebiscite, not a representative. We didn't even get a referendum. We got a oh, plebiscite. Oh, that's right, the plebiscite. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's been through a about my rights. Yeah. I find it is particularly absurd... Yeah. ...to be questioning this around Indigenous voice to
2: Parliament. So I get the sense we're all on the yes vote in this room. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So that's Rebecca. Yes. I said, she, has all, she said to me just that, what she's what she's just said. And I said, well, now you know how the people, how, you know, gay people who were denied the right to get married felt for all this time this is how it feels to be marginalized like i think it's absurd
0: to have the idea of you know the majority gets to comment on your rights what are fundamental human exactly rights and it feels so much more deeply offensive to me for indigenous people it is offensive just
2: it's i'm sorry (laughs) no it's true and we and we It's offensive for anyone to not be respected, acknowledged... and seen and heard. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you reconcile
0: some Indigenous leaders that are coming out for the no vote?
2: I have a theory about that. (laughs) I'll leave that one to you. (laughs) I can only imagine that um, there's politics involved with that. And black politics can be pretty political when you are relying on federal government to fund your organisation, and, and, and it happens a lot, you know, yeah. to be honest, you know, you, you're funded by the governments to run an organisation or help you run, you know, part or partially funded, then you can be persuaded to have certain political agenda or agendas. So, because I haven't had any excuse for a no vote that makes any sense to me. What about the... One of the things
0: that we don't recognise in this country well at all is the diversity of Indigenous voice
2: mm.
0: and the the divo- diversity of First Nations in terms of the collectives of mm. nations that existed in this country. Is it possible to represent Indigenous voice in 12 individuals or however many individuals end up being
2: the voice? Look, it's better than not. <laughs> it's better to pick 12 people who can bring a voice to the table than, than what it is now than what we mm-hmm. have now, which is no voice. So uh, it's like I just said with black politics, not everyone agrees and it can get, you know, a little crazy up in there, you know, like you know all these people from different areas and different mobs can be have very different opinions about things. You know, does everybody always get along? No. But you know, it has to be a respect. And I keep coming back to respect and, and that's like my my main point with anything in life is, you know, you have to be respectful of another person's point of view and who they're speaking for and someone coming from WA is going to have that agenda for, for that mob and someone from Queensland is going to have their agenda and they're all specific geographically, you know, geographically you have different, you know, reasons to talk about or to value different things but I think having twelve, any 12 people I'll take any 12 people mm. at this point and I mean, you, and
3: when, when, once we're included, you throw yeah. your hat in the ring, and once we're accepted and included, you just improve how you do things over the years. You so start not, somewhere; it's never going to be perfect to start with. Yeah. But if, at least if we're in the game, you know, yeah. and you know, you can always
2: and, change the players. You can, yes, but you got to right. get the team to together, be, I mean, right? You got to get the
3: that's team together, exactly. <laughs> exactly and right. the rules
2: established.
0: Yeah. I, mean, I mean, from my point of view, like I don't think the voice is perfect, but it's—I agree—it's a step it's a step it's a in the start. direction of something that yeah. means that fundamentally we can't see what has historically happened in this country which is indigenous issues have become the football that parliaments have thrown around to their own advantage we entrench something in a system that says you can no longer just dismiss indigenous issues as it suits you and you need to have voices at the table when you're making decisions and
2: we all know how you know politicians work and how politics works. And it's like, you know how many how many black fellows are going to turn up to vote
3: mm.
2: it's about has real you know I mean, how dare they say
3: that anybody cannot be included yeah you
2: know, this is australia But it hasn't been in their interest thus far to really do anything for indigenous people because you know they're not going to get a bunch of votes i mean it's in their interest to represent big business because there's money involved in mining and and you know to appeal to Mid- to middle Australia and get that vote. But, I mean, to, you know, disenfranchised, disadvantaged groups, they're going to be like, well, you know, throw them a bit of a bone or don't, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's not going to affect whether I get, you know, voted in again. But this is this is about Australia on the world stage now and how we look mm. to the rest of the world. And are you going to have country, a really small country like New Zealand have huge, huge respect for their Indigenous people and give them a treaty, and we in this country, who have been around the longest, are still just fighting for recognition mm. that we, you know, this was not, wasn't terra nullius when Captain Cook came. Mm. So I'm going to change track. It's every lawyer's and every criminal
0: justice student's dream to engage with The Hague. Is it? <laughs> it really is. It's like this idea of, like, you know, fighting for human rights and being engaged in a big... Well, we're all humans kind. and we all should have rights. <laughs> That's you know, what it comes down to. But you two are kind of in the thick of it. How did that come about?
2: Well, in a nutshell, as we just spoke about before, my sister got married when we were in Los Angeles and had a had a child and I'd been there 13 years. Our mum had come over and been there for 10 years. Yeah, wow. Yeah, she really had a good time. <laughs> And, um, it got to a point where I' just been we'd been there that long. I, we hadn't been home. We hadn't been back. you know, some people come you know come back and get their fix and, and go back. And I was just burned out after working sixty, sixty five even longer hours. I was I was thirteen years older, and I had just come to the, and in America you either, you know it's uh, if you don't work, you don't eat. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to get back home. See what the next phase of my life was going to be. My, our mum was having a few health issues. and I said, "Okay, I'll take mum home. We'll go home." And you know, Rebecca was married and there. And then she, Rebecca says, "I'll come home for a holiday. <laughs> I'll bring bring uh, bring my son home for a holiday. And I'll stay for a few weeks and come back." So we're on the plane coming home and back to Brisbane, and she's like, well, "I need to tell you something." And I said, "What?" She said, I, "I don't think I want to go back." I said, "Why?" And she said, "I've been in." an abusive relationship for the last couple of years and as with most women who are in domestic violence relationships they don't report it, not even to family mm. for, for a lot of reasons so I said well this is I don't know anything about it. I had not practiced in family law at all so I, I didn't know the specifics, we had never heard of the Hague Convention Hague Child Abduction Convention but I knew it was going to be some kind of legal issue and Got back home, got back to Brisbane. She told her husband she wasn't coming back and it was about three months later and she was served with a an application to return her child to Los Angeles with a court hearing. So it was a very quick... It's very mm. quick... It's a six-week turnaround with these cases. So once they, they locate you and locate the child, they get you in court pretty quick and orders are made... In 90% of cases, to send the child back, not the mother, the child. Mm. But how many mothers are going to go back? Oh, totally. Going to let the child go back, especially when they're very small. So that's what happened, and we went back here for very long. And I said, "What? Well, we've got to go back." So go back, and that's what they do. They they force you back there to fight it through the mm. domestic courts in the other country. But what I found with doing my PhD and interviewing 10 women about this, including my sister, is that this is a last resort for women. No one just goes, we've had a fight, you didn't take the garbage out, I'm hating you today, I'm just going to pack some stuff and leave with our child. I mean, this is after a long term, a long period of abuse. It's not getting better, it's getting worse. The child's getting... What I found was when the children got older and they could realise what was going on, that's when the mothers finally decided to leave They didn't really leave for their own benefit they left because their child was starting to recognize Mm. what was going on and be affected by it and maybe even be you know hurt themselves it's a last resort for women to do this but it filing a return application under the Hague convention is very easy for abusive men to do central authorities who handle it in both countries don't question them they don't want to know their background don't want to know about any dvo's or other orders against them they just take them on face value they send it to the next central authority in the other country and they go, oh, well, wow, this poor guy, his child has been taken away. And these get rubber-stamped, these applications, and for the most part. Even women who bring copious amounts of evidence of DV and orders and paperwork from police, etc., and doctors saying, you know, this has happened, the courts, especially in Australia, will send a child back and make the mother return to try to back, go back with no money, no family support, no income, back to where the perpetrator of abuse lives, to, to somehow fight for parental rights through the courts in that uh, district. So yeah, I've been fighting for 10 years to get this the, the law amended here in Australia. This year, there's been some minor changes, some minor positive steps taken by the Attorney General, because there's been a movement. There's Mm. a big movement in the UK from a group called Philia that I'm involved with. So changes are happening happening there in the UK. It's very unlikely we're going to get the Hague changed by the Hague because it takes it's a big process, apparently. They can make these conventions, but, but changing them is like a big deal. So we're trying to get things changed country by country, and we're doing that here in Australia. So I've been interviewed a few times by ABC Radio and by the Family Law Council a couple of months ago, which involved family court judges. So, because women are dying here from domestic violence, like two women a week at oh. least, you know, it's it's just off the charts. So when a woman says, I've left someone because they're hurting me and my child, our child, that's just got to be taken seriously. Mm. So the Attorney-General this year has amended the, amended the regulations here, which obviously shows they can to say that judges can take domestic violence into account, not that they must, which would have been a better word to use when you're changing legislation. So judges still have the power to do that or not, so that doesn't really force them to change their approach to hate cases. And the Albanese government's going to throw $18 million into the pot for women to defend these applications which they never could before legal aid didn't fund them
0: uh, um
2: you can't meet the merit test with legal aid because you have to have a good chance of winning uh, and of course you don't you in don't. these cases so automatically you don't get legal aid money so you're pretty um up the creek without a paddle if you're a, a mother trying to defend a returned application so things are changing slowly but i'll take it and i think this time next year there might be some fundamental significant changes to our Hague laws here. So I've been doing a lot of talking about that with government lately, thank goodness, because I couldn't reach them in the beginning. It's only been the last couple of years, probably since I finished my PhD, really, that uh, I've had opportunities to discuss this. Mm. And other women, mothers have come out and said, look, you know, this is what's happening. Mm. So there's a lot of women on board. Like I said before, you need a movement to Mm. make change. So home and pray and um, Rebecca went back and mediated with her husband at the time and she's one of the lucky ones because he ended up letting you return to Brisbane and yeah then he moved here himself and remarried <laughs> so he's got another child to, to another woman and that's she's just, just left him as well yeah. so so it just goes to show it's about controlling the mm. mother you know because really you know it's It's a tool that's being... It's a law being weaponised by abusive men to get women back who manage to escape from them. And these women die. Mm. Some of these women are murdered when they get back there. And there's no statistics kept on that. And they have all the power and
3: all the help... And all the money. The men yeah, by the... um, Authorities. Authorities. And the woman has nothing and she's labelled a kidnapper. So, I mean, that's
0: my question. Abductor. Like, clearly you're preaching to the choir here around the DV but I guess the question that would be posed is from people would be like is it is it not just easy to leave and claim DV and like just say
2: that it happened no because court judges want to see bruises they want to see broken they want to see you the standard for Hague cases here is brain damage. That's the case oh, from God. about 12 years ago where a woman left fled from Greece and she'd been beaten so much, punched in the head so many times she had brain injury and dizziness and she had medical records saying she had permanent brain from being beaten. Mm-hmm. And the the Hague judge said, OK, we're not going to return your child because you would go back and you 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 will probably die. But if you're not making police reports
3: every time something happens, taking that risk... Yeah and, ta- you know, taking a chance that he might not find out that you've gone to the police about him and then you have to come back and you're basically sleeping with the enemy. Yeah. If you don't have reports from every time he's hurt you and then you go to the police and say, this is what's been going on during my marriage, they don't even take it
2: seriously. The police do not take it seriously. And then I've even heard cases of women doing that and then leaving and then saying to judges in the high courts, this is the evidence that they've been... They've gone, looks like you set it up, looks like you planned to leave. Mm. So you've spent a year doing police reports and a year going to doctors and a year going to social workers so that when you came here, you'd had that... I mean, you can't, you can't win. you damned if you do, damned yeah. if you do The moment
3: I left him, they had my son's face up on the freeways yeah. as an Amber Alert yeah. saying he'd been kidnapped. By the FBI. Wow.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah.
3: And I have photos of, of that. And, um, yeah, they were... The FBI were helping him immediately. Mm-hmm. How do you mediate that? <laughs> it oh, is so hard. Was, but yeah. but, look, but I have this saying where mm. you play you play the you don't you play the man you don't play the game. So basically, you have to know who, who you're dealing, dealing with. with. Yeah. And when
2: you've been with someone for a while, you do. We well, would say to her, constantly, so, I could I could send you to jail." And They said that. Mm. We went back to, to Los Angeles Airport, and I waited for two hours with her son while she was in interrogation with airport police trying to get in contact with her husband to ask him what they she, he wanted what he wanted do. them to do he said that he was at work <laughs> and they couldn't get a hold of him because
3: he doesn't didn't answer his phone while he was working and so we she was sitting there for yeah, hours yeah. and i was in an interrogation room until they got a hold of him set probably three hours yeah. later and said she's here what would you like us to do with her
0: why are they asking him? It's an international order.
2: Because that's what order. they do in America, right? She's right? in a third world country in some... Yeah. That's in a, weird. In America, they can decide your fate. And then they've criminalised it here now, so you can go to jail pretty much in most countries now if you're a mother who's taking your, your child with you to leave domestic violence. That's a relatively new thing in here. They don't advertise it. But, yeah, no, you could have sent her to pr- a federal prison and told her that every day. If they would have if he yeah. would have said to them arrest her then I would have gone to jail. Yeah. Yeah, wow. That yeah. day. He said no, I'll deal with her. So is that it? is that better? I mean, yeah. That's a chance you take when you go back with your child. And that's why women are dying. Yeah, they're getting murdered by these so very what does evil the men. Ideal system look like. For hate cases? Yeah. It's don't marry a guy from another country, <laughs> or oh no, you know, don't know you're married. You don't even have a child with someone from another country. But if you do, for for these cases to be better, better handled, I call it a good law gone gone wrong because a good law gone bad because it was drafted in the seventies to deal with fathers abducting their children from countries and taking them to the Middle East, mm. and there was no law around getting the kids back. No, you know conventions. No, you know once that they were gone from. Here or LA or whatever to, you know, some Middle Eastern country. You probably weren't going to see your child again. So it was that was happening a lot with fathers because they knew they were going to lose in these court, you know, court cases. So because are abusive. So they they drafted this law and this this is protection for mothers and children now. But when you flip that and, and mothers start leaving domestic violence with children, but they're applying that same law to different circumstances, it has a whole range of different problems for these mothers and children. Mm. So I don't think it should be applied to to the circumstance where a woman's leaving domestic violence with her child at all. It just shouldn't be. She's never going to leave the child behind. No. With an abuser, especially. So, yeah, I mean, it's just... I don't think that law should be applied to those circumstances. If it is... And you do bring evidence of domestic violence. I've I've gotten orders, and the court said he's is running a drug cartel in South America. This is a bad dude, you know. Mm. If you can bring this evidence, which women do, that's automatically this application's dismissed mm. straight away. If you're an Indigenous woman with an Indigenous child, that child doesn't leave Australia or New Zealand or wherever it's wherever they are. They do not leave the country of their of their origin of their where their people are. I mean, right now, like last year, an Indigenous woman here had to send her two-year-old little girl back to Europe to an abusive father who doesn't even care about the child. And she wasn't allowed to go back at the same time either. The court ordered for for her, yeah, for months. So, I mean, if they are going to apply this convention to those circumstances where a woman's leaving DV with her child and she can prove domestic violence has been occurring over this period of time, And to go back would, you know, place herself or the child in danger. That should be an automatically automatically dismissed application right there. What about the men, though? I feel icky even asking these questions. It's okay. What about the (laughs) men, though, that
0: don't abuse their children?
2: Yeah. They're just violent towards their partner. And that's what, that's what, that's what judges base their decisions on in these cases because the convention's is supposed to protect children, there's no mention of mothers. The way they get themselves off the hook is by saying, well, it was only the mother that got bashed up, it was only the mother that got, you know, raped in the marriage, it was only the mother who couldn't access funds to feed, you know, feed herself and, and, you know, just had to, you know, do the best she could. So they go, if, it, if there's no perceivable harm done to the child, and we all know by, through research that if a child's living in a domestic violence situation with, you know, a father beating a mother and they're witnessing that, that has long-term traumatic, you know, effects on a child anyway. But judges, with Hague judges, think, well, if the child hasn't been physically touched, they're OK to go back. And that's what they, how they justify these decisions to return a child. So that's what my argument's been for 10 years is if a mother's getting abused, beaten, et cetera, and the child's witnessing it or the child's growing up in that environment, that is, you know, harmful to the child. Mm. And there's tons of evidence out there and research that says that as well. So we've been trying to educate judges who are just family court judges and then they started off just hearing these hate cases and just not really dealing with them as a separate, you know, beast, which is what they are. But rather, just like, oh, you're a woman, and you 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 had a tantrum, and you left with your child, and you're depriving this poor father of their child, and it was only you that got hurt, not the child. So we're going to send, you know, we're going to let the child go back, which is so crazy. When I hear myself say that out loud, that they totally disregard the fact that this woman's been, you know, abused over years. And then finally, as a last resort to to save herself, and her child's old enough now to really be affected by it, has made a decision to go. And she can't tell her abuser. Oh, by the way, I'm going to go. You know, just because these women end up dead, Mm. you know. And may I just speak
3: to that briefly from a psychological point of view? There's a ton of research out there that just shows that children should not, not be away from their mother mm. from, the age, from birth to at least the age of five and even older. I mean, there's, there's research out there that shows that they can live without their fathers, but they cannot live without that attachment. Internal. That, that, mm. that relationship with their mother, that nurturing, that bond, that relationship, that affection, until they're at least five years old because it will have a traumatic effect on their mental health and well-being so they they need their mother they have to be with their mother no matter what so even if they're not being abused themselves they should never be separated from their mothers and how do judges
2: disconnect the fact that you know the mother's being abused physically in all these other ways but the child in their eyes isn't i mean of course they're being impacted by that and then the indigenous children that's a whole different
3: layer of of, of, hurt, of yeah. hurt and you know being separated from your culture your indigenous culture and your country really? you know that's a whole different level of trauma as well
0: mm. must have been terrifying
3: getting on that plane it was it was very scary I, I didn't know what I was going to be in, in for I knew it wasn't going to be great but I just really needed to be with my family and as far away from him as possible mm-hmm. and I just thought one day at a time, I'll deal with the rest later. But it was so freeing, being up in the air and knowing that he, was wasn't, he going, wasn't... on was
2: scary going back,
3: though. He wasn't, I just that, didn't know what to expect. He wasn't on that plane with me. But, yes, going back, was it was very scary. Mm. The most scared I've ever been. Not knowing knowing that my fate my future was in his hands and not knowing that's the way it is for all women what Mm -hmm. he was going to do my happiness was in his hands for your life completely yeah yeah so your
0: son is of an age now where maybe he can understand and start to reflect on some of this stuff how does he reflect on it also again you don't have to answer this stuff
3: oh no that's okay um you haven't told him I have have not shared much with him at all. And I have actually, just from all the research and the training I've had with psychology, I know that it's important for a
2: a boy to have a good male role model in his life. Well, I know he's... well, Well, we've come across people who didn't know their fathers... And it hasn't, and stuck with them their whole lives. And they haven't been able to get past it. So, oh, well, I've always wanted him to know who his
3: dad is, and I've just left a lot of the bad bits out. Let's just mm, say that. And yeah. um, I've encouraged him as he's gotten older to get to know his dad. And he knows, he knows basically that I left him, and a little bit of why. But I've never spoken about his dad in a disrespectful way. Mm, and I. to to Cody, my son, and I've never never, um, shared all of this information. I'm sure he will probably find out one day, but it won't be from me. It'll probably be from the media. The internet. The internet. But I'm a firm believer in, you know, if it's safe for them, that he should know who his dad is and... He's had, yes, contact with him. And now that he's older and he's actually bigger than his dad, you know, and I encourage him to get to know him and his dad has... Changed a little bit over the years, and come to realise um, his behaviour was unacceptable. And why you left, and what, and he realises yeah. now why I left. And we've talked about that since, and we've made peace. And I've tried to encourage Cody to have a relation. Well, after I left, we had an agreement that Cody and him would have Zoom sessions from time to time, just so that they he wanted to keep that communication mm. going and. And I was okay with that because it meant that I could come back to Australia and have Cody with me, and he wasn't here, and it was it was just peace peace of mind for me, and so
2: distance is always what the, what women told me when I interviewed them was they just there was nothing else they could have done where they would feel safe except for put distance between themselves and their abuser, so that's what they did.
0: Hmm.
2: You know, the authorities, yeah, you know, the DPA's weren't helping, the police weren't helping the. You know, no one was helping. So I mean, they were just facing this threat every day. So they just left. So we would say to ladies, even girls that
3: are females that are from uh, that are here in Australia, yeah. but they might be from another country. Yeah. If they meet an Australian guy, have the baby back where you come from, in your country, so that yeah. if anything happens and it goes south, yeah. you know the relationship yeah, doesn't had, work. Yeah. You can go back to your family and. You know, that's the where the baby was born and you're not going to go through this whole Hague
2: situation. Yeah, because I spoke to women who said that the, he'd actually the father had actually enticed them to have the baby back in his country. Mm-hmm. Like, he actually had thought that far ahead. And, you know, you don't think the person you're having a your baby with is going to, you know, do any harm to you at that stage. So you go with what they want to do. And then it goes, you know, it's to their advantage when the baby is you know, born in their country. I mean, it's really hard to get out of that and get back to your own country after that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Just real, yeah, just be, you know, it's, it's sad. You've got to say, you know, really know the person that you're, you know, with and really try to know them, what their motivation is. You know, are they starting to control you at all in the beginning of the relationship? You know, are there red flags? Do you want to have a baby with this person because it's really going to change your life? Because the law is not, you know, the law's not on the side of women in these in these cases mm. right now.
0: No one in a relationship, though, wants to go, oh, maybe this won't work out. <laughs> oh, like, I know. am oh, so in it love.
2: Like, well, we've, been, might, we've been there. <laughs> it's such a struggle.
3: They might be perfectly happy and they might yeah. think this is not going to happen to them, but I would say have the baby in the country you were born in, just mm. for if peace can, of mind. If you can. If you can, for peace of mind. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh,
0: so, what's the next steps then for the Hague? Mm.
2: Well, just just keep working. Well, it's kind of gained momentum in the last two years, like with media. Really, the the woman whose little girl got sent back to Europe, she started a website here called herhaguestory dot com, and so she has a lot of information on there. She's got stuff on there that I've done some publications, and I'm just trying to get the word out as much as possible around this around this law. To, so that the, the government will get on board with amending it so that it protects women, it doesn't prosecute them or persecute them and that is to put a, a really solid DV, domestic violence defence in our regulations which says to judges if there's evidence of domestic violence you know, take away their you know discretion if there's evidence of domestic violence you must deny this application that's it, plain and simple and then the judges who do want to do it will be going okay, great, now I've got something to hang hang my hat on. And the ones that are very into strictly enforcing this will go, well, now I have to, you know, really look at this evidence and, you know, I don't want to get appealed, so, I mean, maybe I should deny this application. So it has to be much stronger around domestic violence and has to be in our legislation. It's not going to change through the judiciary because they've had 40 years to change Mm. it.
0: It's
2: not going to change that way. So it has to be a legislative change... And you know, the money coming in is really good so women can apply to have some kind of funding to get get representation. But also, yeah, change the legislation so that lawyers and judges can't ignore, you know, domestic violence evidence anymore. It's there, it's in black and white, you have to look at this. And that's what I'm going to keep doing. I'm going to keep shouting that from the rooftops so until, you know, the, it gets amended at the government level. Mm-hmm. And hopefully it stays that way and the next government doesn't come in and change it. But, you know, I can't think that far ahead. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Rebecca, what do you want to do as a psychologist in practice? Where's this taking you?
3: I really feel it's my calling to work with people that face adversity, every day. I, throughout my undergrad uh, degree, I worked as a carer in disabilities and loved it. Just found it so rewarding every day. And that's definitely the direction. I mean, the, the beauty of psychology is you can just work in so many different fields and take on so many different kinds of positions. I actually, um, by nature, I'm very positive, so I really love positive psychology. But I don't want to be a life coach, so (laughs) I I really, I'm very interested. I have been a a personal trainer in the past, so I really am interested in eating disorders. I am really interested in, in people with disabilities, our senior citizens as well. Anybody that struggles to be seen, to be heard, to be
2: recognised um, we like working with women from 8 to 80 so our ultimate goal <laughs> is to have work in that space even just more well, to have a retreat even like somewhere lovely where you know girls and women can come for a couple of days and just you know relax breathe stretch walk swim and eat talk have, yarn. A, have a glass of wine have a yarn, have a some yarn car, and talk to us about make some friends issues that because all your issues okay. from about 18 onwards you know they change every every 10 years so we're like we might get someone who's going through this at this age and then you know now they're 28 and they're going you know they might have this issue but specifically women over 50 which is my focus I'd like to see you know have a place where women can come and and have that support and you know with a psychology back, background there would be you know that service available around the mental health stuff, and then the physical health, we'd have, you know, activities as well, just to come and decompress. We, you know. Know. we do.
3: you do and I want to collaborate once again, and this is the ultimate goal for us, is to have this... Our health retreat, <laughs> our wellness retreat. A big healing space, mm. mentally and physically, for people to come that... Um, but it's it's going to be for women, so... We're working you know, towards Just that. to come to, you know, to talk about anything or to work on anything, and,
2: you know, I just... We just talk we talk to women all the time anyway, like we see someone in the kitchen, we talk to them here at work or we connect people we connect with other, other people, people that can help
3: them. We're just so, natural
2: networkers as well. You, and but, you're surprised when you find out things about what's going on in people's lives, There could be a health issue that you didn't know about. You see this person all the time but you didn't know they had a health problem or, you know, they've just, you know, left their partner or their child is going through something and I just thought, you know, just come somewhere for a couple of days and just Heal yourself as a woman so that then you can give back to the people you care about. And I think, you know, that's important if we don't heal ourselves and take care of ourselves. We don't have the capacity to help others mm-hmm. in our work, in our family life, in our personal life, in, you know, society in general. Mm. But in particular, yeah. I, I'd like to work with
3: women that have been through trauma yeah, and just help them to rebuild their self-confidence because, you know, in psychology you realise that a lot of issues stem from low self-esteem which is usually childhood has been triggered you know from childhood Mm. you know childhood trauma and then you know a lot of us grow up with thinking that we're not good enough we're not smart enough we're not funny enough cute enough and so you know just I think because I'm naturally positive I want to help people to be that
1: better version of themselves themselves where they
3: can see point out things about themselves that they don't never really do you know i praise people and compliment people all the time and they say people someone no one has ever said that to me i find Mm. that really odd but you know just to help people to realize their true potential
0: i can't wait to come sit in your garden circle yes (laughs) Yes.
2: you're going to get the first invitation oh my god
0: (laughs) Love and it. just
2: to be free and feel heard. Because sometimes yeah. are we lucky we have each other, so we're always, like, you know, seen and heard with each other and being best friends and sisters. But, I mean, we have a couple of women in our circle. We make friends every day, but, you but know, We only have a few close friends that we engage with and they know everything about us. But, I mean, for a lot of women, people, there's, a lot of women, there's, like, no real... Opportunity to just go. Or
3: connection. There's is... so many lonely people yeah. out there. So my parting message would be: reach out to people. Say hello to people. If mm. you see somebody that's, you know, that looks a bit quiet or they've got something on their mind, don't let leave them be. You know, speak to them. Maybe they don't have anybody to talk to. And Gina and I do it all the time. Mm. And, you and would people be open up really quickly. They open up, and you'd be surprised that what, what, they're tell probably, you, they're what they tell you. Probably going through a yeah. lot, and they just
2: want a smile or a friendly word. got to be unburdened for a minute, you know, just to like I've got it out to someone, you know. Not everyone can afford a therapist, so I've got one yeah. <laughs> she hasn't charged me, so you know, and she's very honest and real with me. But I mean not everyone has that. So yeah, that's gonna be our our wellness space and this is going to be you know that's our goal for the next couple of years so we're so working towards that we want to
3: heal our
0: community
2: we want to heal the world
3: yeah one person at a
2: time
0: <laughs> i feel like there's something in like one of the subjects i teach is trauma reform practice in criminal justice so one of the amazing things that the students pick up on every year as they talk about creative therapies mm. and the link to Indigenous cultures, which used to have ritual and sing and dance yes. and move and yeah. do art around... Yeah. We will be doing that. ...connection yes. and resolving yeah. trauma yeah. and building identity, which all of the core things that we of Western European yeah. descendants have just gone, oh, well, that's not necessary. Mm-hmm. And it's. I think we're so much worse yes for it because we and we can really learn from indigenous knowledges around mm-hmm. that connecting around gender mm-hmm. around creative expression around ritual that mm-hmm. it is it's deeply sad to me that we've lost so much of and we don't practice so that much connection. of that now mm-hmm.
2: nowadays we go out dancing like every two weeks just just in the city we just go out dancing for a couple of hours and we just we're creative with it Yeah, you know, we just like People let us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they don't throw us out. And we go, we go clubbing to the 80s music and we just drink water all night and then we, we have a kebab and we go home. That, that was therapeutic. It's was so therapeutic. therapeutic. Just
3: have that connection yeah. with your
2: community and with country and just, you know, it just makes you feel so but free. But your point about online. having that creative expression and it could be, you know, can you know, do you have time to paint? I mean, you got to make time mm. for this stuff. You've got to make time to... You know free your spirit you know you just you have to because we're in charge of healing ourselves mm-hmm. i will have yeah. dance pet yeah.
1: art music yeah.
0: therapy
3: <laughs> all of those things i love
0: and i'll
2: have food agree therapy. With. i'm down with <laughs> it
0: i'm so so into this yes. so gina tell us about your favorite
2: theorist so i have a few because there's so many amazing women in this world but i'm very attached to alice walker who if people don't know wrote the color purple and won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction and she, I don't know, she's not a real out there feminist but just her, her herself as a woman and how she lives her life is very feminist and she came from a very humble background in America and she educated herself and she's just, just had a gift for, for literature and, and writing and she graduated from sarah lawrence college was it's pretty prestigious so you know just overcoming all these challenges and coming back to my love of education and making that available to as many girls and women as possible because that is your true key to success in life and whether you go on to be you know a professional or, or a teacher or or a researcher or or not. I mean, to to have the opportunity to educate yourself and achieve that for yourself, I think can only be the foundation for your self confidence and mm. empowering yourself going forward in life. But for my sister and I, for Rebecca and I, it's the all the education we've had and the you know the degrees we have been able to achieve. Thank goodness through a lot of hard work and and you know opportunity has only empowered us to want to help other women. So if that... And that's Alice Walker, I believe, like, women like her and, and other women in community, Aileen Morton-Robinson and Chelsea Wadigo now, who's running Karumba, yeah. and, you know, non-Indigenous women too. Any Indigenous women who come into this sphere of giving on themselves as educators, as teachers, I think that's the best gift you can give anybody. Mm. So, yes, and, you know, the colour purple very, you know amazing piece of literature and uh, made into a movie, of course, with Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey and, yeah, very moving. So she's my my choice for today. I love it. Yes. Rebecca, who inspires you? You
3: know, I actually could say a lot of well-known people, but my true inspiration is my sister sitting right beside me. (laughs) Thank you. And probably just watching her go to university many years ago when I was a hairdresser and thinking, Oh, I could never do that I've never I've
2: never paid for a haircut for thirty years. <laughs> so
3: she's oh my inspiration. Mm, to I mean a I like. <laughs> And just, you know, just thinking that, you know, I don't I'm not a book person and I could never do that. And they're the kind of things that, you know, you you know, that's the self talk that sometimes mm-hmm. we
2: Limit we limit ourselves limit ourselves, ourselves
3: with. Too. But just being so close to my sister and, you know, living with her probably almost every day of my life. Well, I was the um, first person in our family to go to uni, so... Yeah, you know. she's been my ultimate role model and my inspiration. Oh, thank you. Of course, there are lots of psychologists and public speakers and, you know, positive role models out there, but definitely Gina is my oh, true is inspiration. That? Thank goodness for big sisters. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Gina, let's go
0: with you first. Top tips for students surviving university? All right, I'll do five and then Becky might want to do
2: five. We've got this list here. So we kind of did this, we collaborated on this. So to just understand, because I didn't go to law school till I was 29, so I kind of had all my partying behind me and I was, you know, focused and I was growing up. To understand that university is one of the biggest commitments you'll make in your life. And it is a commitment. So be real be realistic about your study workload. If you already have a busy life, you might want to start off maybe studying part time to see, you know, how it all fits for you, see if you can cope with uni and other life responsibilities. You know, a lot of kids dive in, you know, head first and it's overwhelming. So just be very mindful that you can start slow and, you know, change that going forward. Then the second thing is find out everything you can about your subjects, even you know, schedule appointments with your lecturers if you can find out what they expect from you as a student, be completely clear about what they need from you in order for you to, you know, get the grades that you need to get. And so you can manage your time without feeling stressed. Number three, engage with other students whenever possible and form a solid network with other students. And it can really make uni life fun and a lot easier and a lot, a lot less stressful. Number four, try to find a mentor. You know, it won't be in the first week maybe, but as you, you know, get into it, try to find someone who can be your point person. It could be a lecturer or someone in your faculty. So you can discuss uni-related issues with them. And they may know about bursary scholarships or other training opportunities that you could apply for. Because that usually comes down that stream to the lecturers or faculty members. Number five, if you're struggling with anything at uni, ask for help. Mm-hmm. Ask for help. Ask for help. Becca and I are not shy. Ask we for ask, help. Ask. Ask for help. When someone says no, we go to the next person. When they say no, we go to the next person. The answer's always no if you don't, don't ask, ask. And there's no yeah. such thing as a silly question. That's right. And there's mu- there's tons of help at uni for all kinds of things. So I did five. So okay, you keep going. You're five. doing so well. Bye oh, bye. <laughs> he came up with these too take care of yourself mentally and physically so it's going to be a bit stressful when you you know starting off and you're not quite you know in the grief yet so eat well move your body sleep well take a study free day just to reset but yeah self care is ex- extremely important mm-hmm. at any stage of your life Go to any uni functions you're invited to. There could be free food. Free food's always, you know, draws me in. You know, if there's no free food, I have to kind of, you know, consider if I'm going to, if it's important enough to go. You'll, you'll never have a bad time and you'll walk away <laughs> no. with something so you could from get, it. So you could get fed and you could meet some really cool people and get your face out there, get your, you know, start building your reputation, mm. let, let people, yeah. you know, get to know you because, you know, relationships are everything in life. That's what we think anyway. Um, start a resume early, this was Beck's idea, so that everything everything you do is added along the way and you don't get to the end and go, oh geez, what about that, I forgot that, you know, you have a solid resume at the end of your you know, course yes. and ready to go when you want to start applying for jobs and other things. As you do things, just add it to add your it resume. To resume, keep updating it. Yep. Start a LinkedIn or Twitter account, to showcase your achievements and, you know, work experience and... Just start building your profile in a very, you know, subtle but professional way. And enjoy yourself. 100%. Enjoy it. Enjoy the journey. Have a LinkedIn yeah. account because people, employers will yeah. will
3: look at it. I guarantee yeah, it. They do. And just keep it clean and keep it professional and... Updated. Oh, the interviews yeah. I've had recently, employers have said to me, It's not about where you went to school, it's not about your grades, it's mm. about you and your personality. Yeah. And that's what uh, several people have said to me. And on a personal note I would say go with your gut. Oprah said, trust your inner voice. Yeah. And even if she it's even if it's a question mark feeling, yeah, go with it. Always listen to your inner voice and never doubt it because it's usually right. It's always right. Yeah. Oh, okay.
2: That's
3: all it. we have for now. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so much more to give. So like,
0: much. We need to write the book. Oh, uh, I totally loved our uh, chat today. I just Thanks, think Jody. you women are amawso- uh, awesome. awesome, and <laughs> like more power to you, sisters. Thank you. Like I just let's take over the world. Well, let's you
2: know, do it. That's, that's our goal. We're ready. Empower, <laughs> empower every sister we come across, and you know, just. Let's, let's all get to be where we want to be with the help of each other.
3: Awesome.
0: Yeah.
2: Thank you, Jodie. Thank Thanks you for this for being opportunity. Here. Oh, and, I love um, it.
3: Thank you to everyone
1: for listening. This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Associate Professor Jodie Death. Editing by Kelsey Adams, that's me. Music by Poddington Bear. And this podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening.